You can live in Gainesville, Florida and still be a Georgia football fan. You can consider yourself a Democrat, yet vote for a Republican. You can work at Lowe's and on occasion shop at Home Depot. When this happens, it's odd, it's ironic, it's out of character, but it's possible. And you can be charismatic and filled with the Holy Spirit, yet still be selfish and carnal. Sadly, the Corinthian Christians were living proof. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is that great chapter on supernatural empowerment and spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 14 is the Bible's fullest explanation of the most controversial gifts, prophecy and speaking in tongues and interpretation. And the believers in Corinth seem to excel in both of these matters. But sandwiched in between these two great chapters, chapter 12 and chapter 14, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 addresses what the Corinthians lacked. They were short on love. At the close of chapter 12, Paul encourages us to desire the best gifts. Spiritual gifts are good. Every believer can benefit from gifts of the Holy Spirit. But gifts are not the most important issue in the life of the church. There is a more excellent way. The greatest of God's gifts to the body is love. And that's what Paul talks about in chapter 13. In the Corinthian church, spiritual gifts had become a substitute for love. The Christians were all about flaunting their gifts. They were rattling off in tongues and looking spiritual more so than loving their brother. That's why Paul tells them in verse 1, Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass and a clanging cymbal. Hey, we're going to get excited about prophecy and the value of tongues and the purpose of tongues in chapter 14. But don't forget Paul's words here. Divine language without divine love is just noise. He says, And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Special revelation, supernatural insight, even mountain-moving faith is frail in comparison to the strength of love. Now, you can have juiced-up faith, strong enough to bench-press Stone Mountain for that matter, but it's nothing, it's fruitless, unless it's coupled with love. Verse 3, And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. I mean, you can make tremendous sacrifices for Jesus' sake. You can die a martyr's death in hopes of impressing God and people. But without love, all of your efforts are vain and worthless. Imagine having a martyr's courage. You travel to Iran. You preach on the streets of a Muslim nation. You preach Jesus. You end up beheaded. But if your actions weren't motivated by love for Jesus and love for people then God will be unimpressed. He says, love suffers long. I'll never forget an interview I heard on Focus on the Family a while back. James Dobson was interviewing a lady 
who had been diagnosed with cancer. She had a choice, she was told. One of her doctors told her that she could live out the rest of her days on the beaches of Acapulco, just enjoy the little bit of life she had left. Another doctor said that she could undergo rounds and rounds of brutal, grueling radiation and chemotherapy with the slight hope of extending her life maybe two, maybe three years. She chose to extend her life, if only for a day. She wrote these words to her three small children. She said, I have chosen to survive for you. This has some horrible costs, including pain, loss of my good humor, and moods I won't be able to control. But I must try this. If only on the outside chance that I might live one minute longer, for that minute could be the one you might need me when no one else will do. For this I intend to struggle tooth and nail, so help me God. Love suffers long. And love is kind. Love isn't harsh. It isn't mean. Love is always tender. Love does not envy. I mean, love never wants the blessing that God chooses for someone else. In other words, love reads the name tags on the gifts before it grabs them. And it's happy for the person who gets the nice gift. He says, love does not parade itself. In other words, love doesn't show off or attract attention to itself. Love is not puffed up, Paul tells us. Love is humble. It doesn't mind picking up a towel and washing some dirty feet when needed. In fact, the purer the love, the lesser the pride. You know, as a father of four kids, I've done my share. I've picked four noses. I've wiped four rumps. I've cleaned the wax out of eight ears. And I can honestly tell you that I never once minded at least not the noises in the ears. <laughs> I never once minded, for real love doesn't mind the dirty work. Love isn't puffed up. And love does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. Love doesn't embarrass the person it loves. It, it always is concerned for the feelings of the other guy. A young bride-to-be, she went to purchase material for her wedding dress she was asked what kind of material she wanted. She said, I want the noisiest material you got. The clerk thought that was an odd request, the noisiest material. That is until the young girl explained. She said, my fiancé is blind, and I want him to hear me when I reach the altar so he won't be embarrassed. Love does not behave rudely. Love does not seek its own. Love is not provoked, or as the NIV puts it, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love doesn't hold a grudge. Love also thinks no evil. Love doesn't jump to negative conclusions. It always gives the benefit of the doubt. Verse 6, Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Did you know love is like a powder keg? It's powerful. Hey, never give up on love. It is the greatest change agent known to man. Even when you're tired of extending it, even when you get frustrated that it's rejected, just keep on loving. 
refuse to resort to lesser methods. Just keep loving them and loving them and loving them. Why? For love never fails. Do you believe God's word or not? But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. You see, in eternity, the gifts of the Holy Spirit will no longer be needed. We won't need prophecy, for God will speak to us face to face. We won't need tongues. Why? Because we'll be fluent in all languages. We won't need words of knowledge. We'll know all truth. You see, spiritual gifts are for time, when we're faced with our limitations, not for eternity. Notice verse 9. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. Now this is the verse that the skeptics use or like to use to deny the perpetuity or the continuance of spiritual gifts. They deny that the spiritual gifts are for today, particularly the more miraculous gifts like tongues and healings and miracles. The skeptics interpret that which is perfect to mean the New Testament. The Greek word translated perfect means complete. And they conclude that when the New Testament canon or the books of the New Testament were finalized or completed, then God pulled the gifts of the Spirit off of the shelf. I couldn't disagree more. For starters, the New Testament was never a complete revelation. In fact, 2 Corinthians 12 is Paul's confession that he saw things in heaven that were not lawful for him to discuss, let alone even write down. You remember the seven thunders in Revelation 10, verse 4. They were heard by John, but he was prohibited from recording them. My point is, that which is perfect isn't a reference to the New Testament. It can't be. No, it's a reference to the perfection we'll enjoy in heaven. That's when we'll reach perfection, when we get to glory. And that's when the spiritual gifts will cease. That's when they'll no longer be needed, when we enter God's glorious paradise called heaven. For now, spiritual gifts are needed. They're needed big time. Notice verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. This is the verse I used to quote every time I got ready to mow the lawn and I had to pick up all the kids' toys out of the front yard. When I became a man, I put away childish things. But this will be the verse we'll all be quoting in heaven. One day, we'll reach full spiritual maturity. We'll reach spiritual adulthood. But that won't be until we get to heaven. Then and only then will the spiritual gifts cease. Notice what he says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. This too speaks of heaven. Complete knowledge is never a characteristic of this life. You know, in the here and now, we see dimly. You know, there's no such thing as spiritual high death right now. Until we get to heaven, the reception's always a little fuzzy. And think about it. If we had 20-20 knowledge, we wouldn't have to walk by faith, would we? We wouldn't need faith. 
But we do need faith. We don't have 20-20 knowledge. And this is why we need all of the supernatural help we can get. The chapter closes, and now, with this dimly lit vision that we have, now abide faith, hope, love, these three. We need them all. But the greatest of these is love. As the old song puts it, without love, you ain't nothing without love. It is the most excellent way. Chapter 14 begins. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. Hey, the dove of the Holy Spirit, it flies on two wings, doesn't he? We need the fruits of the Spirit on one hand and the gifts of the Spirit on the other. We need both the graces and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. Desire them both. Did you know there is a Christian denomination that has adopted as its official policy towards spiritual gifts? They've adopted the phrase, seek not, forbid not. Well, I would just like to add to that, and get not. I mean, seek not, forbid not, and get not. Look, Paul says, desire spiritual gifts. If you want them, you've got to desire them. In Luke 11, Jesus said to his disciples concerning the Holy Spirit, he said, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. Tonight we're going to study the gifts of prophecy and tongues. You need to remember that these are not just matters we should believe. These are gifts that we need to receive. And Paul adds, especially that you may prophesy. When legendary football coach Paul Bear Bryant directed the Alabama Crimson Tide. He would observe the practices from a tower overlooking the field. The bear, he trusted his coaches, and he trusted the playbook to direct the team. But when he wanted to address a specific situation he saw, he would shout down with a bullhorn. Well, the gift of prophecy is God's bullhorn. God is in heaven's tower, and He watches us live our lives. Hey, the on-field instruction is provided by the coach, the Holy Spirit, and by the playbook, the Bible. But on occasion, there will be something specific that God will want to address to us personally. And so, He'll pick up His bullhorn, and He'll speak directly to us through the gift of prophecy. Prophecy, you might say, is instant inspiration. I like to think of it as spiritual texting. That's what it is. It comes straight from God's keypad to yours. It's not a premeditated or a planned talk. The Hebrew word translated prophecy, it means to bubble up like a fountain or to tumble forth. The gift of prophecy is a message prompted by the Holy Spirit that flows from my spirit through my mind out my mouth. Prophecy is a spontaneous, ecstatic utterance. God puts the words in my mind and I speak them. My mouth becomes God's mouthpiece. 
Amos 3 verse 8 declares, A lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Notice this. The Holy Spirit so often speaks to us in a still, small voice. But here the gift of prophecy is compared to a lion's roar. Notice verse 2. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands him, however, in the Spirit he speaks mysteries. Now the rest of chapter 14 is going to contrast the gift of prophecy and the gift of tongues. First, prophecy, we're told, is a message from God to man. Whereas tongues is a means by which man speaks to God. Now, in hyper-Pentecostal circles, often an uttering in tongues will be followed by a supposed interpretation, something like, Thus says the Lord, listen to me, little children. You know, it's as if God is speaking to us in the tongues. Hey, that's not what verse 2 teaches us. That's not an interpretation of the tongue. It may be a prophecy that follows the tongue, but the tongue remained uninterpreted. Why? Paul is clear. He who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. Tongues are never God speaking to man. They're man speaking to God. you got to get that clear. Paul's clear about it. He says, but he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. Now, most people assume that the gift of prophecy consists of foretelling the future. But a word of prophecy may or may not contain a predictive element. The purpose of prophecy is for edification, exhortation, and comfort. In other words, a prophecy builds up, stirs up, and cheers up, whichever we happen to need. For two years, Kathy and I, we struggled to have kids early on. (laughs) We've got four kids now. Obviously, we stopped struggling. But in the beginning, we struggled to have that first one. Struggled for about two years. I had a pastor's conference one year. In fact, it was on the last weekend of May, 1982. Kathy requested prayer among the pastor's wives. In response, one of the ladies prophesied over my wife. She had a gift of prophecy. The Lord spoke through this lady and said, By this time next year, you will have a child. Needless to say, Zach was born May the 29th, 1983. One year to the very weekend, the prophecy was fulfilled. It was amazing. And what kind of an effect do you think that prophecy has had on our family over the years? It's certainly built up our faith. I'm sure it stirred up Zach. What a legacy knowing that Your birth was foretold directly by God. And when Zach struggles, it cheers us all up to know that God still has a purpose for the boy. Hey, desire spiritual gifts, especially prophecy. Why? Because it builds up and it stirs up and it cheers up. Verse 4 explains why Paul prefers prophecy over tongues. He says, he who speaks in a tongue edifies who? himself. But he who prophesies edifies the whole church. 
You see, when you speak in tongues, no one understands the tongue or the language that's spoken. Its only benefit is to the person who exercises the gift, whereas prophecy is God's message to the church. Everyone gets blessed through the prophecy. He says, I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. Now, I will say to you, I personally have the gift of tongues. I speak in tongues. And it's a wonderful way to praise God and to worship God. Yet I also know that tongues is the least of the spiritual gifts, since it's the only gift that doesn't encourage or build up the whole church. Paul says the guy who speaks in tongues, he gets blessed, he edifies himself, but it doesn't benefit the hearers unless it's accompanied by the gift of interpretation. Verse 6, But now, brethren, I come to you speaking with tongues. What shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching? Understand, the gift of tongues is communication to God in a language unknown to the speaker. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, people gathered there in Jerusalem, were there from all over the world. And so when the disciples spoke with the gift of tongues, the crowds were amazed to hear God being praised in their native language. But understand, Pentecost was the exception, not because of the gift, but because of the audience. I doubt if the church in Corinth was a multilingual congregation, I mean, they all spoke the same language or languages. And so to speak to each one in a foreign language made no sense. The goal when the church gathered was the conveyance of truth in biblical thought, not them getting together and speaking in tongues. Paul adds in verse 7, Even things without life, whether flute or harp, when they make a sound, Unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how will it be known what is piped or played? In other words, whenever you play an instrument, communication is the key. But if it's just random notes, that makes no sense. If people can't understand what's being played. For if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare himself for battle? I mean, bugles sound off in the midst of battle to direct the troops. But if the soldiers can't tell if, if you're blowing to signal a charge or whether you're blowing to signal a retreat, I mean, the army is destined for defeat. Communication is the key. So likewise, you, all, you, unless you uttered, likewise you, unless you utter by the tongue words easy to understand, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are, it may be, so many kinds of languages in the world, and none of them is without significance. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be a foreigner to him who speaks, and he who speaks will be a foreigner to me. He's saying that in the church, it's communication that matters. When we gather together in the public assembly of the church, it's us being able to communicate to each other and express truth to each other. That's what counts. Verse 12, Even so you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. 
Again, these Corinthians, they were enamored with the spiritual gifts, but they had forgotten the purpose of these gifts. I mean, like a child sucking on a set of car keys. My kids used to do that. I mean, they're missing the point, aren't they? You don't use car keys as a pacifier. And likewise, church isn't for self-centered entertainment. It's to build up the saints. That's why we gather. And that should be the use of the spiritual gifts in the church. That should monitor it and, and measure it. He says, therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. Now, if you're in a small group of believers and you're waiting on God in worship and the Holy Spirit prompts you to speak out in tongues and no one else in the group interprets what you utter, then you need to pray for the interpretation. If the tongue doesn't get interpreted again, no one can benefit from what's been said. And the purpose of any church gathering is the mutual benefit of all. That's what Paul is stressing. Verse 14. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. Now, we shouldn't really be discussing the gift of tongues without understanding what it is we're discussing. So what is this gift? What is the gift of tongues? The word tongues means languages or dialects. That's all it means. And the gift of tongues is the Spirit-given capacity to praise God or to pray to God in a language other than my native tongue or any language that I may have learned. Through the gift of tongues, through the gift of the Holy Spirit, I'm liberated to praise God in a free and uninhibited manner. In other words, through tongues, I become fluent in my worship. Now, according to Ethnologue, there are 6,912 living languages in the world today. 6,912. Of those languages, I know only one. That's English. And I know very little English. The English language consists of 800,000 words. That's excluding another 500,000 technical terms. In the average person's lifetime, he or she will only get around to using about 60,000 of those 800,000 words. And worse, the daily working vocabulary of the average person is around 7,000 words. That means I use less than 1% of the one language that I know. That's a limited vocabulary for sure. Now this isn't much of a problem until I start to communicate a thought that's very important to me, but I can't find the words to express myself. It's a very frustrating experience to go groping for words. Has it ever happened to you? I'm sure it has. There are moments when even the most eloquent person gets caught off guard and at a loss for words. This awkward articulation seems to occur most often in highly emotional moments. At times when our hearts are either full of love and joy or perhaps grief and sympathy. I mean, you're, you're about to burst with all of these pin-up emotions. You can't find the right words to communicate what it is you're feeling deep inside. This becomes very frustrating. 
Very frustrating. You know, I often feel this toward my wife. I mean, I want to express the depth of my love for her. But she's heard I love you so many times, it's just sort of blasé. And since I can't afford diamonds, I'm stuck. And this is also a problem that I have in my relationship with God. At times, I am awed by His presence. I'm amazed by His grace and His love and His forgiveness toward me. I'm blown away by His blessings. And suddenly the speaker becomes speechless. I love you just doesn't cut it. You see, humans are like a funnel. There it is. The narrow neck of the funnel is our intellect. It's our vocabulary. It's our thought process. And it's very limited. The wide base at the top is our spirit. And it's on the spiritual level that we're capable of experiencing all of these deep emotions. Yet, all that we experience on the spiritual level, in order to be verbalized, it has to be getting constricted and it has to flow down through that very limited vocabulary and that very narrow intellect. The narrowness chokes off the flow of the feelings and it bottles up the emotions. Yet the Holy Spirit knows every language that has ever been spoken. According to chapter 13, verse 1, the Holy Spirit is even fluent in the language of the angels, believe it or not. I'm linguistically limited, but the Holy Spirit is, and He knows all languages. Therefore, and here's the gift of tongues, don't miss it. Therefore, the Holy Spirit can plant words in my mind. Words that I don't know, but words that are the accurate and articulate expression of my heart at that very moment. And I can express those words by faith and know that I am worshiping God in a way that is pleasing and beautiful to Him. That's the gift of tongues. And it's a wonderful gift. As the words enter my mind, I step out in faith and I begin to utter them, believing them to be the Spirit's interpretation of my praise or concern. When I speak in tongues, I become free and fluent rather than fumbling and frustrating. I become a fountain of praise rather than a bottled up bottleneck. The gift of tongues bypasses my mind and my vocabulary. Notice how Paul puts it in verse 14. My spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. Harold Horton explains it this way. He says, the gift of tongues sinks a well into the deep profundities of the rejoicing spirit liberating a jet of long-pent ecstasy that gladdens the heart of God and man. And then he asks, Have you never in the presence of Jesus felt inarticulate on the very verge of eloquence? Well, if you have felt that, you need to ask for the gift of tongues. Verse 15, what is the conclusion then? I will pray with the Spirit. And I will also pray with the understanding. I will sing with the Spirit. I guess that's tongue set to music or to to a beat or to a rhythm. 
and I will also sing with the understanding. In other words, Paul has concluded that there is a time and a place for both praying in tongues and praying in one's own language. He says, otherwise, if you bless with the Spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen at your giving of thanks since he does not understand what you say? For you indeed give thanks well, but the other is not edified. And notice here the gift of tongues is referred to as your giving of thanks. Again, tongues is always prayer or praise. It's never God speaking to us. It's never prophecy. Two different gifts. But notice the idea Paul interjects. Time and place is important. You know, there's a, there's a decorum that exists when the public assembly of the church gathers. The priority of edifying the whole church now begins to govern the exercise of the gifts of the Spirit, especially tongues and prophecy. Now Paul is saying that when the church gathers together in the public setting, and you know what I mean by that. In our, in our case, it would be Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights. Those would be the public settings of our church. There would be other times when we would meet. We could meet for a home fellowship somewhere. We could meet for a potluck. We could have other occasions when we gather together as believers. But in the public setting where we invite people from outside of the church, when the church opens up its meetings to everybody and anybody, the uninformed person may be present. Paul here talks about the uninformed person saying amen at your giving of thanks. Now this is either an unbeliever or it even could be a believer who's just simply doesn't understand how these gifts work. But if at the point of our meetings, if the point of our meetings is to love and to minister to the uninformed person, then why would we use a gift that he wouldn't understand and couldn't be able to appreciate? This is why at Calvary, our public meetings we, we want folks to come who are just getting started in the Christian life. We want uninformed people to come. And so if I speak in tongues, those people, they'll become confused perhaps. They'll think I'm a weirdo maybe. They might run for their lives. This is why Paul writes in verse 18, I thank my God I speak with tongues more than you all, yet in the church, in this public assembly, I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. Over the years, I've been pressured by Pentecostal folks who would like for the vocal gifts to be exercised in our services. My response is I'm just trying to be biblical. And here to me, it's obvious. Though Paul spoke in tongues often, in the church's public meetings, he discouraged the use of this gift. Apparently, he understood that tongues is best practiced in a person's own devotional life or in a small group of informed people, not in the public gatherings of the church where the uninformed folk might be present. Verse 20, Brethren, do not be children in understanding, however in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. Spiritual gifts and common sense go hand in hand. Being spiritual is being sensitive to the situation. 
Now, verse 21 is where the text gets tricky. Paul writes, In the law it is written, With men of other tongues and other lips I will speak to this people. And yet for all that they will not hear me, says the Lord. And here he quotes Isaiah 28, verses 11 and 12. Therefore tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Now, first, verse 22 appears to contradict both the verses that have come before it and the verses that will come after it. I thought tongues were for the informed believers, but here we're told that they're a sign for the unbelievers. What gives? Well, the key is understanding the context of Paul's quote. He's taking this from Isaiah chapter 28. There the prophet Isaiah is predicting an invading army, that it'll come, that it'll sack Jerusalem. The Assyrians are coming. These invaders will speak a foreign language. Thus, when the Jews hear an unknown tongue being spoken in their streets, it's a sign to them that God's judgment has come. Thus, tongues to them was a sign to unbelievers. It was a sign of judgment. Okay, so when an, un- when an unbeliever comes into the public assembly of the church, what do we want to do? Do we want to heap judgment on him right away before he's even had an opportunity to hear of God's love? Not hardly. Don't condemn him before you try to reach him. But that's what you're doing if someone speaks in tongues. Their uncomfortable reaction to the tongues is proof of their unfamiliarity with the things of God. It would be a sign of their alienation from God. It would be a sign of God's judgment upon them. This is why he says in verse 23, Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues, and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you are out of your mind? I mean, the fact they... They freak out over the tongues. That's proof that they're unfamiliar with the things of the Spirit. That's a sign of God's judgment upon their life. But is that the first impression we want to give them? Of course not. We don't want to highlight their ignorance. We want to try to build a bridge to them where we can reach out with God's love. In other words, don't scare them off before you try to bring them in. That's what he's saying. He says, but if all prophesy... And an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all. He is convicted by all. And thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. Though tongues is confusing to the unbeliever, prophecy is clear and compelling and convicting. Thus in the public setting of the church, the gift of prophecy is preferable to the gift of tongues. This is the reason we stress the teaching of the Bible in our public assemblies. You know, if everyone got carried away and spoke in tongues, it would would bless those with the gift. But everyone else would either be confused or perhaps even scared silly. Remember, the Bible is a book of prophecy. It too builds up and stirs up and cheers up. Thus, when a service is dominated by tongues, 
A few folks get blessed, but when the Scripture is taught, oh my, everyone walks away encouraged. Okay? Verse 26. How is it then? Brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. Apparently, the church in Corinth loved to meet in these small groups. And in the small groups, they had a very informal structure. Everyone participated. It was kind of a spiritual free-for-all. And that would have been okay had it really been for all. Rather, the meetings were being used by a few haughty people as a platform to sort of show off spiritually. The meetings in Corinth, they needed some structure and some discernment and some restraint and a whole lot of love. First, the structure, verse 27. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. Now, I've attended charismatic meetings where everyone started speaking and perhaps singing in tongues simultaneously. It was sort of a concert of tongues. In fact, that was how it was, it was presented. But according to Paul, this isn't a biblical practice. Paul says that those who speak in tongues should each take their own turn and each use the gift of tongues. It should, after they've used it, it should be followed by an interpretation. He says, but if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in church and let him speak to himself and to God. Notice this. I mean, the person with tongues has the on-off switch. If you speak in tongues in one of these small groups and no one else interprets and you pray and you don't get the interpretation, Paul says you need to turn it off. You need to turn it off. It's interesting to me that we do carry the on-off switch. When you speak in tongues, the Spirit gives you utterance, but you still control the volume and the reverb and the mute button. I remember a misguided friend of mine he was standing next to a co-worker at the grocery store where he worked. He said the urge came upon him suddenly. And he just started blurting out in tongues. It scared his poor co-worker to death. And my friend had the audacity to blame his impulsiveness and his lack of discernment on the Lord. He said, I just couldn't help it. The Holy Spirit made me do it. That's not what Paul says. Paul says, you still got the on-off switch. It's sad, but how often has a beautiful meeting of believers been interrupted by an errant burst of tongues? It's happened many times. Jumping ahead to verse 32, notice Paul says of the gift of prophecy, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Apparently, this also applies to the gift of tongues. Verse 29, he says, let two or three prophets speak, and let the others judge. Now the gift of prophecy, as with all spiritual gifts, is subject to human error. In Jeremiah 14, verse 14, the prophet says, And the Lord said to me, The prophets prophesy lies in my name. I have not sent them, commanded them, nor spoken to them. They prophesy to you a false vision, divination, a worthless thing, and the deceit of their heart. Hopefully no one in the church would ever deliberately deceive, but we can all be self-deceived. Often well-meaning believers, they get lathered up emotionally, 
and they mistake their own imagination for a message from God. This is why all prophecies should be judged. I've known folks who made major life decisions on what they assumed was a word of prophecy. They would have been wise to put it to the test ahead of time, to prove the ideas before they acted on them. 1 Thessalonians 5 provides us some good advice. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test all things. Hold fast what is good. Verse 30 tells us, But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Whenever someone speaks in the assembly of the church or in a small group, it needs to be done in a controlled and in an orderly manner. Why? He says, for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Hey, the very first time we see the Holy Spirit in Scripture, Genesis chapter 1, what is he doing? He's bringing order out of chaos. Where there's no order, people get hurt. I mean, you've heard of folks being stampeded at a soccer match. I mean, there was no crowd control. People just went off the chain. They just went nuts. And this can happen in the church. Needs go unmet when it does. People get neglected if there's no structure or organization in the church. God is into order because God loves people. And speaking of order, notice verse 34. Let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. And I'll let John Pounds explain that after the Bible study tonight. Actually, recall Paul has already qualified this comment. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5, he mentioned women praying and prophesying in the church. Apparently, this wasn't an absolute prohibition. This doesn't mean that a woman should never open her mouth in church. It could be that in regards to these vocal gifts, ladies are good at at vocal gifts. They're, They're verbal people. It could be that in regard to speaking in tongues and prophesying and so forth, the ladies in the church were getting carried away And they were usurping the authority of the male leaders. The Corinthian women needed to remember that in the church and in the home, the men should lovingly lead and the women should faithfully follow. This is why Paul adds in verse 34, But they are are to be submissive, as the law also says, and if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church. Verse 36. Or did the word of God come originally from you? Or was it you only that it reached? <laughs> now Paul figures that some of these Corinthians are going to buck his instructions. And so here he backs them down. The church at Corinth didn't hold an exclusive claim on the truth. I mean, Corinth wasn't the birthplace of the Bible. The church in Corinth, as well as all the churches, even the churches in Lilburn and Winder, churches all over the world, they're all subject to the truth that Jesus passed down to the disciples, his apostles, and and is now contained in the New Testament. All churches are under these obligations. This is the truth that applies to all churches in all generations. No church is exempt from biblical truth. Paul 
Paul's clear. He says, if anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. Notice this. Paul definitely understood that he was writing sacred scripture, that what he was writing was inspired by God, so much so he doesn't hesitate to put down his detractors here. He tells them, but if anyone is ignorant, then let him be ignorant. If you're going to show your ignorance and disagree with me, well, then you just be ignorant. I mean, he knew he was writing God's word. Finally, Paul sums up in the last two verses what he said throughout chapter 14. Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak with tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. In Jesus' name, amen.